God, we are so thankful for this morning. God, we thank you that you are the faithful one. Lord, that you are one that we can fully trust in and depend upon. God, you've given us the gift of gathering with other believers here on this Sunday morning for a particular reason and purpose. God, we pray as your word goes forth, we pray that it would move in power. We pray that it would not return void, but it would accomplish the exact purpose that you have set. So God, we pray that our hearts would be receptive to that and would submit ourselves to what you have for us in John chapter 6. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, do you remember the class in which you felt like you learned the most in? Remember which class that that was? Maybe it wasn't a class that you had the most fun, or the class that you had your most friends, or maybe even the class that you had the best grade in. But which class did you take in which you felt like you learned the most in? I know for me, some of the best learning experiences actually occurred outside of the traditional classroom. Some of the things that I can remember growing up, I remember learning um, on a field trip to a museum or to a park or some sort of hands-on experience. I'm certainly not arguing against uh, traditional education or the role of a conventional classroom by any means, but I think that we can all agree that exposure to an experiential environment is important in the process of learning, growing, and developing. I find it interesting that uh, when you look at Jesus' ministry, he seems to utilize both environments, both kind of the traditional classroom, whether it's in a synagogue or on a mountainside, you think about the Sermon on the Mount, and then also he seems to be taking his disciples and different individuals on these field trips these experiential environments where he asked them to put into practice what he's been teaching on. And I wonder if we asked asked the disciples here this morning, hey, which environment did you feel like you learned the most in? And I wonder if they would say, you know, some of those powerful lessons actually occurred on those field trips that Jesus took us upon, those experiential environments where we were forced to put into practice what he has been teaching on. Well, you know where I'm going this morning. As we look at John chapter 6 and verses 16 through 21, Jesus walking on water after he sends the disciples on this boat, I believe Jesus is taking them on a field trip. I think he is continuing on in this lesson that he began in John chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000. And if the disciples thought that that lesson ended at verse 15, then they would be surely mistaken. What we saw last week uh, was Jesus had this large crowd of people, probably upwards between fifteen to 25,000 people, and he's, he was healing them, teaching about the kingdom of God, and then fed them with five loaves and two fish. An unbelievable miracle, so unbelievable that because of the messianic fever that was taking place around the Passover, uh, they wanted to force Jesus to become king. They thought, this is the one who's going to overthrow the Roman government. And we looked last week about just a really interesting couple of verses in verses 5 and 6, where Jesus turned to Philip and he asked him the question, where are we to buy bread? And John includes in verse 6 that Jesus said this in order to test him, okay? So it kind of feels like we're in this classroom of Jesus, and he's trying to teach the disciples these different lessons. And you get towards the end of the feeding of the 5,000, and we move into our passage this morning And Jesus moves the classroom from this mountainside and moves it into this boat. I'm going to call this classroom in our passage this morning the classroom of hardship. 
or the classroom of the storms of life. And I think it's in this classroom that Jesus some of, does some of his most beautiful teachings, some of these lessons that can only be learned during the storms of life. I said last week that I think John chapter 6 is one of the most important chapters in this gospel. And I said that because when you look at kind of the larger context of the chapter, you see that Jesus' popularity is at an all-time high, thousands and thousands of followers in the beginning of 6, and then you get towards the end, and it seems like many of them had left Jesus. And what's kind of sandwiched in between the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, kind of this hard teaching is our passage here this morning, Jesus walking on water as the disciples are found in this great storm. Now, we didn't touch on this last week, but the disciples in the feeding of the 5,000 um, weren't really that far from where the crowd was as far as um, not fully understanding Jesus' identity. That we kind of assume that the disciples were with Jesus, they were believing everything that he was saying, and yet Mark's account of what happened during the feeding of the 5,000, Mark says in Mark chapter 6, that he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they, the disciples, did not understand about the loaves. Ooh. I'm just reading scripture, okay? This isn't, this isn't heresy yet. So. But Mark says that they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, that gives us some insight about the condition of the disciples during the feeding of the 5,000. They weren't fully there yet. And yet something happens in this classroom of this hardship that leads them to the end of John 6, verse 68 and 69, when thousands of people are leaving Jesus, Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and says, are you going to leave me as well? And the disciples respond, where else can we go? Like, you have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One sent from God, and we believe. And that is a monumental statement by the disciples. They finally understand Jesus' identity. And yet, what happened? In between the feeding of the 5,000 and this long discourse in John chapter 6 is this field trip that Jesus takes them upon in order to teach them about his identity. So what I want to do during our time this morning is just point out three lessons that I think Jesus teaches his disciples during the classroom of hardship. And these are things that really can only be learned when you're going through a storm in, in life. So let's look at each of these. Here's the first one. The first lesson is to trust in God's sovereign plan. Trust in God's sovereign plan. I believe if we had the disciples up here and we're interviewing them, we're like, hey, what did you learn from that experience being on the water? Number one, they would say, trust in God's sovereign plan. Verses 16 and 17, John tells us that when evening came, his disciples got into a boat and they headed for Capernaum, which was on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, they were on the southwest part. The Sea of Galilee was about eight miles uh, wide from the point where they were to where they were headed, and they were now heading north. Now, the reason that they do this is because Jesus told them to do this. In Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 14, it says immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And then it says in verse 23, after he had dismissed the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. I want you to try to picture this. I want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples during this scene. 
You've got Jesus who orchestrates one of the most amazing miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. He then dismisses the crowd, tells the disciples to get into the boat, go to the other side of the sea, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to go up on this mountain, and I'm going to pray. Okay, so the disciples obey Jesus. They get into this boat, and they're about halfway across the sea. And all of a sudden, this storm, this storm comes about, and they're really fighting for their lives. And you have to wonder, like, what do you think the disciples were talking about uh, during that experience? I just wonder if, if Peter, you know, the, the impulsive one, the, the, the blunt one, said, you know what, guys? We're in this storm because we obeyed. Like, we're in this trial because we did what was right. And I wonder if someone else said, you know what? Do, do you think Jesus knew that the storm was coming and he told us to get into this boat anyways? He's been talking about how he's the son of God, he's the chosen one. Like, maybe he is sovereign, maybe he knows all things. But wait, wait, no, Jesus loves us. Jesus cares about it. He has compassion. There's no way Jesus knew about this storm. He surely would not have sent us during the hardship of this storm. And yet, something that we know about Scripture is that God is completely sovereign. He is control of all things. That the God of the Bible is not a God who is surprised by things. He's never caught off guard. And so for these disciples here, as they're learning kind of about the sovereignty of God, of why Jesus sent them into this storm, he sent them in this storm for a particular reason and for a particular purpose. When you look at Mark's version in Mark chapter 6, you have the most amazing verse that, that he states in verse 48. He says that as Jesus is on the mountainside and the disciples are out in the middle of the storm, verse 48 very powerfully states that Jesus saw them. Jesus saw them in the middle of this storm. Now, think about that for a moment. Jesus is four miles away. It's during the darkness of, of the evening, and there's this storm that's raging on, and yet Jesus supernaturally sees exactly where the disciples are, and verse 40, it says he then goes and helps them. Look, that's the God of Scripture. That's this sovereign king who not only uses all things, but he also enters into our trials and into the storms of our life that he sees what we're going through and he moves and he acts and he really gets into the boat of our lives. Look, sometimes we kind of talk about God's sovereignty and the doctrine of God's sovereignty as kind of this abstract theological paradigm that has no bearing on the practical impact of going through trials. And yet just because God is sovereign does not mean that God's distant. God's sovereign in that he sees what you're going through and enters into the trials that we face. That God is not helpless in the midst of our trial, but he wants to use it for our good and for his glory. These disciples are caught in this storm, and they're really caught in a difficult position, a situation that could easily create fear and anxiety, that they're out here on the water during the darkness of night. Look, I don't know if you've ever been near a body of water or on a body of water during the darkness of night, but that is a scary uh, situation. And that's where they're at here. They're about halfway in their journey, eight or nine hours at this point, and the waves are pounding against them. The storm is raging on, and this is a prime opportunity to run to fear and to doubt. This leads us to lesson number two, I think, that we learn in the classroom of hardship, disciples, again, were up there. They would say, 
Combat your fear with truth. Cling to truth. Don't cling to doubt. This is now the second time that the disciples, these followers of Jesus, have found themselves in a storm. That they were in a storm in Matthew chapter 8. They were actually on the Sea of Galilee, so the same sea. But in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus was physically with them. If you remember that account, Jesus was sleeping on the boat. Storm comes, and they just simply kind of wake Jesus up, and then he calms the storm, right? Now, in this situation, <laughs> Jesus is not physically with them. So, you know, the storm is raging. I'm like, wait, where's Jesus? How do, we, how do we solve this problem? How do we get through this trial? And you can just see how fear and anxiety and worry can just kind of creep into the boats and even the boat of our own lives. These seasoned fishermen, they were doing all that they could to prevent this boat from capsizing. They're basically in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was known for having these sudden changes of climate. It was located 600 feet below sea level, kind of sandwiched in between these mountains. And so wind would just be whipping through there. And so this is quite popular. It would go from calm and peaceful and predictable to very challenging and an arduous situation. I remember this week just thinking about that, the reality of the Sea of Galilee, and I just thought to myself, that's life. Like, that is so characteristic of life where you're in a season of life that's easy and calm and peaceful and predictable, and then all of a sudden something changes and you find yourself in a challenging situation. You might get a call from a doctor and just everything changes. Situation might come up in a particular relationship. Maybe you get a text message or a phone call or an email, and your life goes from being fairly peaceful to now challenging. Even Mark's account describes the disciples at this moment. They were straining at the oars, but making very little headway. And I thought, man, that's life right there. Where you are trying to move forward, you're trying to grow, and yet because of the difficulty of life, you're making little headway. Disciples are surrounded by the darkness of night. They're in the middle of this sea. I I wish that John included some dialogue here of the disciples. I wish we could know like what they talked about, what they were really thinking. You have to wonder at this point if someone was like, where in the world is Jesus at this point? He's the one that told us to get into this boat. Is he going to show up? Has Jesus abandoned us? Has he forgotten about us? And yet that's very typical when you're in kind of the classroom of hardship as Jesus allows us to go through different things. It's so easy to cling to doubt instead of truth. And when God feels distant, it's easy to believe that he's distant. When God feels like he's abandoned you, it's easy to believe that he has abandoned you. you know, I want to encourage you this morning and, and really challenge you to combat that fear with truth. And one of the ways that you can do that is by actually talking back to your fear, talking back to your anxiety, talking back to your worry. Remember Paul Tripp said that the most influential person in your life is you. And he wrote that because he said, no one talks to you more than you do. That you're the most influential because you're in this constant dialogue. Like as fear and the lies of fear like come into the boat of your life and they want to try to capsize your life, It's so easy to believe the lies of fear and doubt instead of talking back to it with truth. Look, I want to encourage you this morning, use the word of God. Use the word to challenge fear. 
to challenge your doubts, to challenge the anxiety. Don't allow yourself to just go with the flow of what they're saying. Don't be um, kind of a prisoner of fear and anxiety, but use the word of God to talk back to what they are saying. Look, it's the word of God that that we trust upon, that we depend upon, that reveals both the person of Jesus and the presence of Jesus in the midst of of the storms. That this word is living, it's powerful, it's authoritative, and it has the ability to unleash these promises and grace in exactly the moment in which we need it. Look, without the word of God, how else will you know about the promises of God that can keep your faith afloat during the storms of life? Like without the word of God, how would you know about the promise of James 4, 8, where it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you? Without the word of God, how would you know 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, where it says that God is the God of all comfort and he promises to give comfort to those who are in affliction? How would you know Philippians 1, 6, or it says that God will complete that which he began in you. There's no storm that's going to thwart the good purposes that God has. He's going to see it to completion. How would you know Romans 8.28? That God works out all things for the good of those who love and are called according to his purpose. I love that verse, and I hate that verse because it says all things, which includes the storms and the hardship of life. It's going to use it all for your good, not for your comfort, but for the good of the transformation into the likeness of Jesus. Like, how else are you going to get through the storms of life without the power of God's word? This is what we have. Look, so often we're trying to grab all kinds of different, you know, lifesavers just to get us through, you know, that storm. Look to all kinds of other things to kind of medicate our way. And, you know, hopefully this boat is going to reach shore eventually. And with that kind of mindset, you're going to miss out on these lessons that God wants to pour out to you during the classroom of hardship. I love verse 20. We're going to get back to verse 20 more in depth here in just a moment. But Jesus finally shows up, and he says some of the most powerful things. He very simply says, it is I, do not be afraid. How powerful is that? Jesus shows up and he says, look, because I'm here, fear has to leave. Like, there's, there's no room for fear because I, Jesus, am here. It's so powerful knowing the presence of Jesus wants to enter into our storms. But look, the presence of Jesus in the midst of storms is most tangible when truth is rehearsed. See, it is I, do not be afraid. That, that dispels fear, but only when the truth about Jesus is reigning in our hearts. When Jesus says, it is I, who is I? It's Jesus. How do you know who Jesus is? Through the truth of God's word. So it is I, do not be afraid, is only as powerful as your understanding of who Jesus Christ actually is. And so this is a beautiful verse in the midst of hardship. It's only as beautiful if you know who Jesus Christ is, not just the fact that he died on the cross for your sins, but all of these promises that say yes in Jesus are for you as a follower of Christ. It is I, Do not be afraid. Look, let me just add one more thing to this. This is why last week I made the point in chapter 6, verse 3, that it is so important to guard and to prioritize your time alone with Jesus. As the disciples got alone with Jesus on the mountain, look, that is so paramount in our walk in the Lord. And the reason for that is because verses 16 and 20 will come into your life. 
You are either in a storm or a storm is coming. And the time in which you're in that storm reveals the quality of your mountain time with Jesus alone with him in the word. And and let let me challenge you again here. You cannot cram in intimacy with Jesus during the storms. And when you're in the storms, it reveals the true nature and the condition of your relationship with the Lord. We need chapter 6, verse 3 to be a regular rhythm in our lives and in our walk with God. So combat fear with truth. Know the truth. Know how to apply them to your heart. Here's the last, the third and last lesson I want to point out. When you're in the classroom of hardship, to use the storms to clarify the identity of Jesus. Like it is so easy here to allow those storms to cloud the vision of Jesus. And yet the intention that Jesus has when we go through these storms is to use it to have a clear picture of who Jesus is and his magnificent worth. Let me point out how I see this in this passage. According to Matthew's account, We are now in the fourth night of the watch. So that was in between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Okay, remember, they left during the evening time, and they're still out there. And so they've been battling against this storm, maybe for eight or nine hours, maybe more. And then verse 19 in our passage tells us that Jesus, upon coming near the boat, the disciples see him, and they're afraid Like, they're frightened when they see this figure. Now, I find that interesting that in the midst of this crazy storm, they are unable to recognize Jesus and to correctly identify who he is. And and part of me is like, you've spent over a year with this guy. Like, surely you'd be able to recognize him. And yet, if you just think about this for a moment, this would be absolutely terrifying. Like, you're out in the darkness of the sea During this storm, waves and the water, the winds crashing upon your face, you look over and you see this figure of a man who's walking on water. And uh, Matthew and Mark's account, it talks about how Jesus was actually going to pass by, which is even freakier in my mind because Jesus doesn't even like look, but he's like going to walk past them almost. Like this is a scary situation for them, and yet they're unable to actually identify who Jesus is. And look, There is something about the storms of life that can either clarify the identity of Jesus or it can obscure the identity of Jesus. And it is largely dependent upon if you are looking and expecting Jesus to show up in the hardship of life. The disciples weren't looking for Jesus here. It's kind of like when you're in the grocery store, maybe you're at Target off 116th Street, and you're there kind of walking around and Like you see somebody and you know that you know them, but you can't quite place them, right? Maybe you have a conversation with them and you use, hey man, how's it going? Hey dude, you know, and you get into your car and it hits you. You're like, oh yeah, they they go to College Park Fishers. It's like my worst nightmare, by the way. Like if that ever happens to us, like trust me, I love you. Like I care for you. It just might have blanked in my mind. But like why does that happen to us? It happens to us because those people are not where they're supposed to be. Like they're not where we're used to seeing them. Like, we're used to seeing them at church on Sundays, not at Target off 116th Street. Like, the same is true for the disciples here. Like, the disciples, for all that they knew, Jesus was still on the mountainside praying. They weren't expecting Jesus to show up in the storm and in this hardship. And because they weren't expecting Jesus to show up, they almost miss him. And they're unable to really recognize Jesus up until verse 19 
because at this point, they didn't have a firm understanding of Jesus' identity. Like, this is exactly what can happen to us in the storms of life. When we think, man, I'm just going to get through this. You know, I know God's sovereign, but he's not really going to enter into my pain here. When we don't expect him to show up, it's so easy to miss him during those trials and during the sufferings, and we miss out on an opportunity to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. Do you remember Jesus is trying to teach his disciples this lesson? He's trying to help them to trust and to believe in him. And for some reason, Jesus believed that the best way to do that is during this storm. It's during the hardship. And there's something about the hardships of life where we learn things about Jesus that we could not learn elsewhere. There are things that God wants to unpack for us about his character, about his identity, that we can't learn through the comforts of Jesus being on the comforts of land. I find it interesting, kind of verses 20 and 21 and the connection there, that Jesus finally uses the storm to clarify his identity. And it's only then that verse 21 is a reality, that they then see Jesus for who he is, and then they're, they're gladly, they gladly take him into the boat, and they're immediately on the shore. And, and look, we, we love verse 21. Like when we're in a storm, we're in a hardship, we want verse 21 to be true for us. We want Jesus to be in the boat, and we want to immediately be out of this storm. And yet, we're not going to experience verse 21 during the hardships of life unless we understand verse 20. Unless we understand those ways in which Jesus shows up to our lives and says, it is I, do not be afraid. And we want to encourage you, when you're in hardship, look, don't allow fear and doubt to cloud your vision of who Jesus is, but press into those ways that Jesus is trying to show you more of himself in unique ways that the storms of life reveal him. I love Matthew, uh, Matthew's account in uh, chapter 14, verses 32 and 33. It says, when he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. And I love that because when they correctly identify who Jesus is, when they see and behold the risen or the Savior here, it then leads them into worship. And look, there is maybe nothing more important in the storms of life than your worship and your response to who God actually is. That the call for us is not to look at the waves and look at our fear and look at our anxiety, but to look up to see and behold Jesus Christ to understand that he is the risen Savior, that he holds the whole universe by the word of his power. There's coming a day in which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, that Jesus is the one who's conquered the grave. He's the one who's defeated our enemy. He's paid the ultimate price to take away our sins. And when we see and behold him, it will lead us to worship. And yet the waves and the trials of life want to cloud that vision of who we see Jesus as. And yet with the storms, when we get to the other side of it, we're thankful for the things that we learn about who Jesus actually is. I'd like to imagine what happens after this scene, after this episode with the disciples. We'll get to this next week, but um, Jesus then goes into the longest discourse in the entire gospel towards the end of John chapter 6. And you just wonder, once they got to shore, like what the conversation was about. Like, the disciples are, like, finally safe, and they're, like, looking around, like, oh, my goodness, was that, that was crazy back there. 
Like, we just, we just almost lost our lives. Jesus comes out of nowhere, shows us who he really is. And you wonder if Peter's like, man, that was worth it. Man, that was unbelievable. Like, yeah, we almost died, but look at all the things that we learned about Jesus, that he actually is the Son of God. And look, there are things that we learn in the classroom of hardship that we could not learn in any other place. And when you get through it, you look back and you say, man, was that worth it? Man, did I learn more about Jesus during that storm that I couldn't learn in any other place? I'm sure the disciples would resonate with Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Look, when we go through the storms of life, it's so important to pay special attention to what the Lord is teaching us, that he doesn't waste storms, that he has specific purposes that he wants to show us about who he is, about growth even within our own souls, and to look back and to say, God is sovereign, God is good, he's going to use all things for my good and for his glory. Well, before I close, just wanted to share um, one story. It's about a preacher named Doug Goins. Uh, the preacher, Doug Goins, was a pastor out in Seattle, Washington. And uh, he got a call one day from an older woman. She was in her 90s. And the older woman said, hey, I'd love for a pastor to come and pray with me. And so Doug shows up to this woman, and her name was Helen Lemel, and shows up to her apartment and hears about her story. And if you know who Helen Lemel is, this won't be a surprise to you, but um, Helen actually has written over 70 Christian hymns and gospel songs. They were very popular in 1920s through the 1950s. She was born and raised in England, married a a rich uh, Englishman, and yet she became blind. And as a result, her husband divorced her, didn't want to have a a blind uh, mother and wife. And so she then moves from England all the way to Seattle, Washington, and she's poor and she's destitute. So this pastor comes and visits with her, shows up at this very poor, broken-down apartment, walks in, and all he sees is Helen, who's, she's in her 90s, and she is belting, singing, and playing on this plastic organ, and she's crying. And he talks about this conversation that he had with this woman, how she can't wait to see Jesus, can't wait to go to heaven, hopefully that the Lord has this you know, pipe organ for her so that she can play. And it's just an unbelievable encounter that Doug kind of talks about. And I just want to read some lyrics from probably her most popular hymn. And you'll know it. The, the hymn is called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Let me just read some of these lyrics. I think it fits in with this passage. It says, O soul, are you weary? And, and I'm going to read this. You don't really want me singing this morning. So, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, remember, this is a woman who was blind, and she's writing these words, and she says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look in his wonderful face, And the things of earth, look, the things of earth that cause fear, the things of earth that cause hardship and anxiety and doubt, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I thought that was a great application point for us. If you're in a storm of life, to turn your eyes upon Jesus, 
to look and behold him. Allow that to lead you into worship even during the storm of life and to invite him into the boat of your life no matter what is going in there and to see Jesus in his magnificent worth. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this passage. God, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are trustworthy. God, we thank you that you do not withhold trials in our lives because we know, as James 1 says, that the testing of our faith produces perseverance, and that perseverance will run its course and will mature us. God, we thank you for trials. As painful as they are, as hard as they are, God, we thank you that you don't waste them, that there's purpose in it. So God, I pray for those who are in a particular season this morning in which they feel like they are in a storm. God, I pray that you would, Lord, just reveal more of who you are to them. I pray that you would unleash your grace into their lives, that you would help them to recall the amazing promises that you've given us. Help us to rely upon them, to depend upon them, and to worship our way through them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.